I've got war on the brain, not to be confused with war in the brain, although that's ongoing. I've always got war in the brain. That's an ongoing conflict, but I've got war on the brain for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I've been pretty fervently anti-war, not, a, not as a protester or an activist or anything, but just philosophically anti-war my entire adult life. And a lot of that was influenced by what was going on then. A lot of that was influenced by the war on Iraq, for example. I'm not a pacifist, though. As I've said before, I feel like pacifists trick themselves. When you're a pacifist, you trick yourself into thinking that you're incapable of war. You're incapable of violence. And I think pacifists often are in for a reality check, an identity crisis, because sometimes you're forced into a situation. Sometimes somebody infringes on your rights or something that you hold dear and you have to react. But uh, you can't come from a place of self-righteousness. It's one of the reasons why self-righteousness bothers me so much. And you sound self-righteous when you say you don't like self-righteousness. Oh, it's a very self-righteous thing to say, to say you don't like self-righteousness. It seems obvious. But self-righteousness, it's one of those things where you know it when you see it, you know it when you hear it. It's one of those things where you feel it. And one of the reasons self-righteousness bothers me so much is it, to me, it's a recipe for conflict and war. And it's often how people justify going to war or getting into personal conflicts. So many personal conflicts come from self-righteousness, too. But it makes me think of that phrase that people aren't really using these days. It kind of wore itself out. It became such a source of mockery by that idea of the right side of history, which is one of the most self-righteous things I've ever heard people say in my lifetime. And it's good that people aren't using it as much. And I know like pundits like Ben Shapiro and people made their silly jokes about it and it deserved mockery, but it became one of those things that, you know, the right wing, right wing pundits love to point out and make fun of. But uh, as I've said before, like if you want to know what the right side of history is, go to a cemetery, go to a graveyard. Those are the people on the right side of history. And I don't mean that to sound nihilistic because it's not. But to think that the people of the future will look back on you and respect your values and respect what you believed. Well, you're not Nostradami. You're not Nostradami. You have no idea what they're going to think. You think they're going to look back and think, oh, they were the good ones fighting for the what's right. You have no idea what the right side of history is. But it's such a self-righteous statement, and it's a war cry. Saying, I'm on the right side of history. And what's insane is I knew people who used to say that. Some of the people I used to spend time with here in Olympia used to actually say that. They weren't just the type of people who would say that. They actually said that. They actually used that phrase. And it always blew me away. That someone could possibly be so self-righteous, they think they know what the right side of history is, or that anything is. But one thing I've never heard said is that it's a war cry. There's a built-in justification to thinking that way.
And it's not just that phrase, but that phrase to me perfectly encapsulates what I'm talking about. That is the justification for anything. And we've seen it used as a justification for many, many things in the last few years. And the reason it is a justification is because if you feel that you are right, you feel that any means necessary to achieve your goal is better than the alternative. And I make sure, I, I do my best to keep myself in check so that I don't think that way about the things I believe. I don't torture myself, but I do think to myself, hey, you know what? I don't know if I'm right about everything. I try to think in such a way and live such a life that I'm not bothering anybody and I'm being decent. And I do feel that if somebody infringes on that, that's a problem. But I don't know what, what that means. It depends on the situation. But, uh, you know, just to kind of segue a little bit here. And it's funny to me because, you know, people think that, oh, well, what if this, what if X, Y, or Z was happening? Wouldn't that be a reason to intervene? And I have to say, too, I had to respond to an email right when I was on a good monologue. <laughs> right when I was on a good monologue. Now, what I was going to say is, you know, just to segue a little bit, you know, people always reference World War II. It's as if it's the only war that ever happened. And it, it's definitely been, despite how large and complicated it was, the circumstances of it have led people to simplify it to a degree that is definitely not intellectually honest. And it, it, World War II has just become this Marvel movie to people. And I've never seen a Marvel movie. <laughs> I, I'm just making a jump there. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I've never even seen a Marvel movie. Um, but the thing, what I'm getting at here, though, is not about like what each country or government or army was doing there, but there's been this revisionism as to why and how the u.s got involved which is crazy considering it seems to be the war that everybody knows about given how much people reference it you would think that they would know some of these details and i think the thing is i think many of these people do know these details but they use it to illustrate a point because world war world war two world war two World War II is this symbol to people, and it's used symbolically. It's not used to actually make a true argument about warfare. It is, it's become just this symbol that you can use. And the revisionism that I'm talking about comes from the fact that people actually think the U.S. got involved in World War II to save Jewish people from Hitler. That was a byproduct but that's not how the U.S. got involved in World War II. And this isn't my interpretation. This is a historical fact. Pearl Harbor caused the United States to declare war on Japan. And Nazi Germany was an ally of Japan, the Axis, and they declared war on us. I'm not trying to oversimplify it because a lot more was going on within that, within that dynamic. But the United States declared war on the Axis 
because Japan attacked us and we declared war on them and therefore went to war with their allies. That's, the, that's what prompted our involvement. Because a byproduct was saving people from Hitler, people have revised history to believe that that was our motivation. And whenever you, you hear people discussing this, whenever you hear people arguing about when and why and how to go to war, they use that as an example. Like when something bad is happening in another part of the world or, you know, anywhere, well, where else is there? <laughs> where else is there aside from the world? But it's like, well, yeah, but it, but we went to, we went to Germany because look at what he was doing. Well, what if they were doing this? Well, people are doing horrible shit all over the world and we don't get involved. People are doing horrible shit in countries all over the world. And we still do business with many of them. You know, we don't invade them and save the people who are being tortured and tormented and killed. We don't intervene. Which should make you wonder why we intervene when we do intervene. But, you know, the whole thing about, you know, why we went to World War II, why we got involved, to me, that's like, if, if you had a, a problem with your neighbor and your neighbor threw a rock through your window and uh, so you blew up his house, which is exactly what we did to Japan. And then you find out that, oh, he's friends with a guy down the street who hates you now, too. And so you go to his house and you go in and you beat the guy up. You kill him. You kill him. I'm oversimplifying things here, but that's the whole point of an analogy. And then it turns out that the guy down the street who you beat up or you killed, whatever you did to him, that, oh, it turns out that he was extremely abusive. He beat his wife every night. He beat his kids. He molested his kids. It was a miserable place. You know, it was a just a, a nightmare in this guy's house because of him. And saving his wife and kids was a byproduct of the whole situation. But you're not going to say, oh, you know what? I went down the street and I kicked that guy's ass. I killed him. I killed him because I wanted to save his wife and kids. That wasn't the reason why you went there and did that. That wasn't the motivation. And it would be revisionism to say that was the motivation. It would ignore the fact that his friend lived right next to you and he threw a rock through your window. And you blew up his house. And then you got involved in a dispute with that guy down the street because of that. Maybe there was more going on, just like World War II, just like World War II. But you didn't go down the street to just save that guy's family from his reign of terror. That was a, a good byproduct, but that wasn't the reason. But the way people talk about World War, World War I can't even say it. World War II. The re- <laughs> but uh, you, know, you can't revise World War II and say that was the motivation. So when people use that as an example for intervention or going and doing things, saving countries, you know, it's just, it's dishonest. 
And people should just let go of World War II. There's plenty of other examples to draw from. Learn. Learn a little bit. I don't make a lot of war comparisons because the reality is I don't know a lot about all the wars throughout history. I know just a little bit. I know they happen. But I'm not going to make comparisons to things that I'm wrong about or I don't know about. I'm just going to make analogies to fighting with your neighbors. You know, there's, I think somebody might be able to call me a hypocrite because I say I'm against war as a general principle, which I think everybody should be. But then I'll make comments on here and in general that there's something honorable about war. It doesn't mean that war itself is honorable. I don't mean that, you know, I don't know what I mean, but it's something that's kind of ancient and built in. There's something deep about war that speaks to me as a man. Not that it draws me in, but when I think about it, it speaks to something. We've always done it. It's like there's a call. You hear a call to warfare. And it's the reason why men will sign up. There's a reason why after 9-11, tons of young men signed up for the military. I knew some of them. No friends of mine, but there were like the older brothers of kids that I knew and stuff. I mean, one of them got blown up in Iraq. He got injured. I knew his brother played football with him. And his brother and a bunch of his friends, they were high school football players who were a few years older than us. And after 9-11, they all signed up because they felt that call. And yeah, it was because of 9-11 in part. But I don't think it was just patriotic propaganda. I think something in these young guys, these young athletes said, like, I want to do that thing that men have always done throughout history. I want to serve my country. I want to fight for a cause. And one of those guys, yeah, he got injured. He got injured, sent to the hospital. As soon as he was better, he really wanted to go back out. And he did. And he ended up diving on a grenade and saving his platoon or whatever it was, his, his group. And I remember when the news came to my school, because he, he had been, you know, a popular athlete at my school a couple of years earlier. And I remember, you know, like teachers who knew him, it was just shocking. I never really knew him, but uh, that's a good example of there's something honorable about war. Not the reason why we were in Iraq, but that young man getting injured, getting out of the hospital, going back out into the field and diving on a grenade and dying is awful. It's awful he was in that situation. It's awful that happens. But that was a moment of honor. I mean, I sell a CD that I've had for 20 years that I haven't listened to in 15 years that I still have some sentimental attachment to. And I'm like, oh, I'm making a sacrifice. Oh, God, this is, I'm making a sacrifice because I'm selling something important to me. Some people like not eating potato chips tonight was a sacrifice. Sacrifice is relative. But that guy dove on a freaking grenade. And I used to see him around. 
he wasn't a stranger. Like I said, he wasn't somebody that I personally really knew. His name was Jake. That's all I, you know, he was my teammate, my acquaintance's older brother. But man, that's, you want to talk about sacrifice. That's just beyond. That's what I mean when I think there's something deep and honorable. The fact that that young guy signed up for the military because he felt something. He wasn't drafted. He didn't have to. He had options. He wasn't a loser. But he and his friends signed up. He wanted to do something honorable, and you know what he did? It's terrible. Not what he did, but the situation is terrible. I don't know how I don't know what his brother feels. I haven't talked to him since high school. But he wanted to do something honorable, and he did. So I feel that I can have an anti-war stance, but also see a certain honor in war. But not a righteousness, not a self-righteousness. Because there's nothing honorable about self-righteousness. Nothing. But it always gets me when people say, uh, when people say things like, um, well, wouldn't you intervene if blah, blah, blah? You never really know until the situation presents itself. You know, it's like when people, they have these hypothetical scenarios in their head, which people have all the time. You'll have all these hypothetical scenarios. You know, a lot of people's personal fantasies, their daily fantasies revolve around like, if somebody did this to me, I'd do that. If somebody did this to me, I'd do that. I've talked about that before. These kind of defensive platitudes, you might say. I don't remember. I remember I had a good phrase for it a year or two ago. But a good example of those are like... Dude, if anybody, like people who are just like going about their daily life will say things like, let me just tell you, if anybody ever fucks with my family, I'd do, I'd, I'd puke on them. If anybody ever fucks with my family, I'd puke on them. Fuck around and find out. That's a good one. Fuck around and find out. That became popular with certain groups of people. But it's not any one group of people. Because I noticed the people who have that, like, sort of these these uh, self-defense fantasies, these aggressive platitudes that they repeat. Like, I've noticed the sort of person who says things like, if you ever mess with my family, they're either kind of trashy. A lot of rednecks and people like that kind of have that built in. Whereas, like, the fuck around and find out crowd is, like, the Antifa, anarcho-communist types, agitators. And I know people who say that. Like, a friend of mine that I used to hang out with a lot back when I was looking at social media during, like, the height of all this madness a year and a half ago, kept saying that. Like, would post things and just be like, fuck around and find out. And I'm like, I know you. Find out what? You're a woman. Not, not that there's anything preventing a woman from doing something violent. But it's like you're, you're a woman and I've always known you to be very peaceful. 
and you're upset about big issues, but find out what? Who's going to fuck around with you? And what are they going to find out? <laughs> that's, my, that's my only response to that. And that's, that's what I always think when, when people have this, if you ever fuck with my family, you're going to see my the, the sharpest part of my teeth because I'm going to bite you. And people who say that shit, I always want to say to them, who even is saying anything about your family? And that's what people do in the shower. Like this is a common, this has become kind of a, a joke among people arguing in the shower with phantoms because that's phantom talk. When people say things like that, they're imagining these phantoms who are trying to fuck with them. And sometimes those phantoms look like people you know, and they might very well be the, the, the scenarios you're imagining might actually be things that these phantoms would do if the situation presented it, it presented itself. But there are these phantom arguments. People have them in the shower. They have them late at night. It's interesting that it, it's something that, that happens when you're like doing things that you have, like, like when you're doing the basic necessities, like sleep, like trying to sleep or showering, it's interesting your mind tends to go there. It's interesting that those, those are the behaviors we're doing when we imagine these scenarios. Like it reminds me of like another one that I used to go through, like when I was 13 and 14 and I would have crushes on girls. I remember laying in bed at night and just like thinking about a girl in my head and not even thinking about her as much as like being like, oh, I'm going to ask her out tomorrow. I'm going to ask her out tomorrow. And then by the time that I was about to fall asleep, I would be telling myself, I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to, it's like you're just going over this shit in your head and you build up to it and you build up to it. And by the time you go to sleep, you're like, I'm, I am, I'm going to ask her out tomorrow. I'm just going to do it. And then I never would. I wake up and I feel completely different. And I never did that once. I never went to school and asked the girl out who I liked. But I was spinning my wheels in bed. You know, my brain was just like, I'm going to, I want to do it. I'm going to do it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. And then I never did. Because it, it was like I was imagining some hypothetical scenario. But people do that with conflict. And I think that says a lot about people, human beings, that when we are idle or anxious or both, that we fantasize about conflict, especially people doing things to us and us either saying the right thing in response or doing something right. And I used to have that when I was younger. Like I had this really weird, when I call it a fantasy, I don't mean that it was something I desired. When I say fantasy, I mean it was like just something imaginative that came into my head. And when I played youth football, I remember having this this fantasy. It didn't last for long, but I just remember imagining like, oh, uh, I, I imagined a player on the other team committing an egregious penalty against me, like grabbing me by my face mask and dragging me or something. And basically... Me, and then me having like justification to like overcome that and be the hero or something. I, I don't even know. It, it was a long, I mean, that was almost 30 years ago. But I remember having that fantasy. I was like, oh, you know, I was imagining like someone fucking with me. 
Like someone messing with me, someone committing an egregious penalty against me so that I could retaliate or I could overcome it or something. It was just, it's a form of what I'm talking about. I wonder how many football players had that one. I wonder how many football players imagine that. Like someone doing something dirty in the game, in the context of the game. Yeah, people have these arguments with themselves. They're imagining these phantoms. And the function of that, for me at least, like I imagine phantoms all the time. I have to say lately I've had very few. As someone who, who has at times a lot of phantoms roaming around my brain, in recent months I feel like I've had relatively few. But when you, when you have them, it's like it's that voice that challenges what you say. It's counterpoint. And that's, there's a function to that because it makes you go, oh, what would I say if someone challenged me? What would, some, what would I say if someone made that argument against me? And that strengthens your argument. But people kind of get sucked into these weird self-defense fantasies where everyone's just waiting to do something to them. Everyone's just waiting to mess with them. Everyone's just waiting to mess with me, dude. Dude, everyone's fucking with me. Easy to feel that way. Easy to feel that there's a, cons a conspiracy afoot. Another thing that leads people to get into conflicts. Another thing that gets people sucked into the war mindset. It's not just wanting to do something self-righteous. A lot of motivation is like, well, if they did this to me, I would do that. Tit for tat, tit for tit, dude. Tit for tit. Tit for tit. And that's what World War II was for us, right? World War II, unless you're a revisionist who doesn't know anything, the U.S. didn't get involved in World War II out of self-righteousness or even righteousness, even doing the right thing, saving people. The U.S. got involved because Japan fucked with us. Japan, fuck with us, dude. That's why we got involved. I mean, uh, it really happened. <laughs> you know, Japan actually attacked us in that case. But people go around imagining the equivalent of that in their personal lives. They imagine their coworker or their friend or their enemy, sometimes both. Sometimes, sometimes your friend is your enemy. But they imagine somebody doing something egregious toward them. They imagine their own personal Pearl Harbor. And then that causes them to go through life with this chip on their shoulder. I mean, you see it with school shootings. Because, I mean, people don't realize this, but school shootings are war. School shootings are war. Those kids are going to war. They take on a wartime mindset. Often there's something kind of self-righteous about it. It's very, I mean, obviously shooting your classmates is very self-righteous. But a lot of it, you know, revolves around this idea that the world is screwed with you. People have treated you poorly. They started the war with you. And that's something I don't relate to at all, but I'm interested in it. 
Like, I'm not interested in school shooters or school shootings, aside from Columbine now and again. But uh, I'm interested in the psychology of it. I'm interested in the psychology of these are kids who are feeling the call. Like those kids at Columbine, I, you know, if you remember, if you listen to this show regularly, I was talking about Columbine in like every episode in December. But those kids in Columbine, like they were preparing for war. They were extremely disciplined about it. Like they were secretive. Eric Harris had a bomb making factory in his basement, in his bedroom. They had all these hiding places. They had all kinds of plans. They had all kinds of, you know, and this was something they'd been planning for a very long time. And they trained. They went to shooting ranges. They tried out their guns. They were like training themselves for a conflict. And yeah, their, their victims didn't have any guns of their own. They went after completely helpless victims. But it doesn't change the fact that they were preparing for war. They were, prepare, they were preparing for an invasion. And one of them even wanted to be, a, I think, a Marine or something. I think Eric Harris, his, his dream was to be a Marine. And I think he got rejected. You know, he was already, his plan to shoot up this, it wasn't like some story, story, you know, a story, story. No, it wasn't some like movie story where, oh, he shot up the school because he got rejected by the Marines, but he did get rejected by the Marines. That happened right before they shot up the school, I'm pretty sure, that he got a call letting them know that he couldn't join the Marines because he was on antidepressants. So he had, you know, he wanted to go to war. He wanted to be a soldier. He just chose the worst possible kind of soldier. You know, he, he probably imagined, he probably had, I mean, I would love to know what all his fantasies were. I mean, I, maybe I don't, but we have a glimpse. You know, we know a little bit. They had journals, they made videos and things. We have an impression of that, but a lot of that's their destructive fantasies of them wanting to hurt people. But I would bet he had fantasies maybe when he was younger, maybe before his brain got malignant. I would bet he had fantasies of being a hero too. I would bet that he had fantasies where he goes and, you know, fulfills heroic prophecies for the U.S. Army or something. You know, I bet he had those kinds of fantasies too. They just got very dark and inward and he channeled them into this day of terror at his school it's like the opposite side of the same coin but I wonder what would have happened if you put those kids in a real war because at the end of the day I don't think anybody could have changed them <laughs> I'm going on in Columbine again but that's kind of my take. It's like I, I do reject the sort of Marilyn Manson. Like I would have listened to them. I would have done what nobody would have done. I would have listened. I would listen to. I would have listened to them. You know, not that that's stupid. I just don't know that it's true. Because when Marilyn Manson said that, and when people make similar comments, I think people have this idea that oh yeah, that's that's the missing thing. That's the thing that was missing is nobody listened to them. 
Listen to them say what? What would listening to them have done? Like, what would they? What? 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 What scenario is this where you're listening to them? What are they saying? Oh, hey, I really want to go shoot up a school. I mean, the one kid, like Dylan Klebold, his parents were really sensitive and talked about feelings. I don't think they were hippies or anything, but they definitely kind of came, like my impression of them is they kind of had that mindset. You know, both of them, the parents were married. There were other siblings, like a little bit older. And uh, that whole idea of like, I would have listened to them because nobody did. What's that conversation look like? Them confessing their violent fantasies, them talking about how depressed they are. From what I understand, they did plenty of that. Whenever I read about Columbine or hear about Columbine, I just end up with the conclusion, like, I hate to say it's fate, but it's like those kids had a death wish. But I do wonder if they weren't in the situation they were in. I do wonder what would have happened if they were if they lived in a war-torn country where kids are picking up arms. If a, if another country in like like let's say that uh, let's say they lived in Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia invaded. How would they have responded to that? If they had a, a situation where they could act out their fantasies for some sort of cause rather than just hurting people, how would that have changed that? Who knows? It's all hypothetical. But as far as the situation they were in, I don't know. I just always end up at the conclusion that nothing could have stopped those kids from doing that at that time. And that idea of like I would have listened to them. I don't like, again. I don't mean to make it out to be a stupid comment because I don't think it's stupid. I just, I just always when people say things like that, it sounds really good. But I've talked about this before, like with suicide. Like when Robin Williams killed himself, I remember like uh, reading things people wrote. Like I read an article somebody I know wrote. They, uh, they wrote an article, and I, it was for the company I worked for, actually, so I ended up reading it. And there was nothing wrong with the article. It was just about suicide and mental health. But it quoted a friend of the author, of the writer, who was like, if you ever need somebody to talk to, or if you ever need an ear, talk to me, because I've got two of them. But the reality is, when you're in a really bad place... You can talk to people and that is great. That does help. But it doesn't necessarily solve your problems. And the reality is too, a lot of people don't even know what to say. They don't even know how to help. They have their own problems. Like we don't live in a world where if you're suicidal, just talking to somebody is necessarily going to make a difference. It's nice to know it's an option. But it's it's not a cure. And uh, I feel that way when people talk about Columbine in, the, in similar terms. Like, what does that conversation look like? I can tell you the other night I was not doing well. 
The other night I was not the worst that I felt in the last couple of months, but I wasn't doing well. And I checked the mail and there was a black envelope with silver writing. And the from line had a, an old friend of mine and he used his pseudonym. And I was like, holy sh he, I've never gotten mail from him. I haven't seen him for probably eight years. Doesn't live in this part of the country anymore. And I was like, holy shit. He sent me mail and it was a fat envelope. Not like there was an item, not like there was a, an object in it, but like, like it had a lot of paper in it. And I, I was very curious. I was like, he sent me mail. That's crazy. And I opened it and he, he sent me, I'm not going to go into detail, but he sent me like a couple drawings, just little sketches and a bunch of writing he had done in 2009 on a train in Nuremberg, Germany. It was photocopies of like, I guess he had a journal or something and he photocopied those and he said nobody else in the right, and he wrote me like a note, a little letter. And he said that nobody else had ever read this writing that he did on the train in Nuremberg. And it was a lot, like it was, it was many pages. And I was like, I'm not feeling great. I don't know if I want to read this right now. I don't, and I don't mean that in a, in a dismissive way. It just seemed like I didn't have the mental focus to give that the time it deserves. And, uh, but you know what? I sat down and I, I started reading it and, and it was incredible. Like, this is a guy who I've never even had philosophical conversations with. We used to hang out a lot. We were involved in some creative stuff together. But we'd never, like, had deep conversations. But, you know, I really appreciated what he wrote. There was, there was It was, like, life-affirming, but also kind of dark. And then, he, the, like, the new letter he had written. Because, I mean, these are writings from, what, 13 years ago that he had never shared with anybody. And then there was also a new letter, you know, a current letter addressed to me. And it was very much, you know, like life affirming, but also realistic. And uh, I felt substantially better after reading it. I was feeling pretty miserable. And I was just like, wow, that really just lit a fire in me. And I never would have expected this person to do that, or not this person, but I, I never would have expected this person to write something and to get it at a time where I wasn't feeling great. And it wasn't life affirming in like a motivational, like, keep your head up. It wasn't, it wasn't even about me at all. It was about him. But I was just like, wow. And in the letter he mentioned, like, I was planning on moving to Europe this spring, but war broke out in Ukraine and that's changed my plans. Like I think he was, I don't, I can't remember the exact country he was going to move to, but he was moving to Europe and he's like, yeah, I was, I was getting all ready to move to Europe and then war broke out. And I was like, that's ancient. How many letters said that over time? That's like something you read. And like, if, if you read some like authors writing, like you know, if someone was famous, they'll publish their letters. If someone was like a famous author, they'll be, they publish their letters and that's the kind of stuff you read in there where it'll say like, oh, I was planning on moving to Poland this summer, but the war got in the way. You know, it's like, the, you know, it feels like it, it really like put me in a different headspace. Like it was almost like a time machine that I'm reading a written letter and nobody writes me letters. 
No one writes me letters. Like I'm, re I'm reading this letter from an unexpected friend, and he's talking about how he can't move to Europe because war broke out, or it made him change his plans or reconsider his plans. And in his writing too, I won't go in, into too much detail because I don't, I don't know that it's public. I don't know that he want it publicly shared. But in, in one of the things he said, he was talking about how everything, you know, including bad things, benefit the mind because they change your way of thinking. No, he, he was saying nothing truly bad can happen to you. Nothing truly bad can happen to your mind. Because even if something bad happens to you, it changes the way you think. It changes the way your brain operates. And that's not bad. That's good. And I like that. And I've thought about it since then. I think that was last week, a few days ago last week that I saw that. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was good. It was unexpected. And, you know, that's nice. It's nice when things come to you unexpectedly these days. Because so much does feel automated. I mean, there was a point in time where that was how you would correspond with people. And if your friends or family wrote you letters, I think about immigrants a lot, you know, studying the mafia as much as I do. A lot of it revolves around these relationships between Sicily and the U.S. and family members, you know. It goes well beyond the mafia. And it's interesting to think about how many people moved from a different part of the world and came here and still corresponded via letter. And you didn't know when a letter would arrive. There was no way to let somebody know they were to expect a letter. Because when I do receive something in the mail from somebody these days, they usually give me a heads up for good reason. I do it too. They're like, oh, hey, by the way, I sent you something. So the idea of receiving something in the mail, especially a black envelope with like a silver paint pen in crazy writing, totally unexpected. And those are the kinds of surprises we just don't really get anymore. Even talking on the phone, you know, I always talk about how much I like talking on the phone. I talked on the phone for like five or six hours tonight. We, me and the other mafia researchers didn't record a podcast, which I think is good. But like there were like five or six people on the phone and it was great. But, uh, you know, the way phone calls even happen these days, very rarely does someone just call you. Usually you like arrange a time to call them. Even if you're just shooting the shit, it's like you arrange for the phone call through text messages and you anticipate it and schedule it. And of course, like we, we you know, people have stuff going on. People are busy. But it's still kind of funny that it's like it's something you're completely ready for. It's not just somebody calling you. Like I look back on growing up having a landline. And your friends and people would just call you. And just like, you know, just like people would send you letters and there was no way pre-internet, pre-text message, maybe when phones are invented, you could call somebody and say, oh, by the way, I sent you a letter. But before all that existed, before phones existed, you just sent somebody a letter and you had no idea if they even received it. The only way that you would know if they even received your letter is if they sent you one back. And there's a good chance you're not going to get it for a while. So we were much more open to just mystery and not knowing and not confirming what was happening. 
There was a lot more surprise. And uh, I mean, I, I don't doubt that that's one of the reason people, uh, one of the reasons people are as depressed as they are. You know, that element of surprise is gone. Not just being, what do you call it, spontaneous. Because the things I'm talking about aren't necessarily spontaneous. But they still kind of catch you by surprise. It's, you know, you were more willing to just send things off into the unknown. And then in turn, you would receive things from the unknown. And you can still do that. I mean, I wouldn't be here today if that wasn't still happening in my life in its own way. Because you can access that by not expecting anything. When you don't expect anything, you receive things from the unknown a lot. And when you send things into the unknown, you also don't expect a response. You don't expect anything. And I do think that as we've gotten more... As we've gotten... As we develop this greater ability to, like, confirm and give a heads up and let people know, I think we've also developed a greater... Need, I think we've developed a, a greater uh, sense of expectation where we expect more. Like if you text message somebody, you expect a response because you know that they you know that it went through. you know that they got it and now you expect something. Whereas when you just call somebody, you don't expect them to pick up. When you used to call somebody's landline, you didn't expect them to pick up. You just called, and if they pick up, they pick up. If you mailed a letter to somebody, you just send it off, and maybe you expect a response. But you're not guaranteed a quick response. And you're not necessarily guaranteed a response at all. I mean, because it took effort, it took time, it took a lot. So as things have become more convenient, as we've been given this greater ability to, to know where things go and where they're coming from at any given time, we also expect more. We're more neurotic. I mean, maybe if you sent a letter to somebody at a certain point in history, you might check the mailbox every day after about a couple weeks to see if they sent something. But think about how many people, especially if you have a crush and you're like you're messaging back and forth with your crush, how many times you might neurotically check your phone or reread what you sent or she sent. I mean, that's one thing I don't miss about dating in the modern world is no matter how disciplined I am, when you're going back and forth with a girl and you message her and then you're anticipating a response because there might be a rhythm. And if that rhythm kind of slows down or anything, you're like, oh, what's going on? I'm expecting her to say something. 
and she's expecting something of you. And you check things. We, we're checkers. We are checkers. That's how I would describe modern humanity. We are checkers. <laughs> we're the people who check things all the time. Check our news feed. Check our phone. Check the news. Check what so-and-so said. Check, check to see if so-and-so responded. I mean, we check enough as it is, but the way technology has moved us along, we really just spend all day checking. And what is that? What is checking? Well, it's expecting something. You check things because you expect something. An interesting thing to do is to check social media or in the middle of the night when nobody's awake. That's an interesting time because nothing is happening and you check, you check and you see the same thing. But there's something glorious about that. Like during the peak of Coronavi lockerdown, I went from a, I, was, I mean, before my mom died, around the time my mom died, I was waking up at like 4.30 a.m. every single day. I'd go to bed ultra early and I'd wake up at 4.30 a.m. And I want to get back to that. But then with locker down and everything, I ended up staying up extremely late. And you know what? I found it very peaceful. I mean, I've always been more of a night owl, which is why waking up early for a while, getting up so early was different for me. But there was such a peace, especially in a time of psychic frenzy, which isn't over. But when the psychic frenzy of Coronavi hit, I really enjoyed just being up in the middle of the night when everybody else was asleep and knowing that nothing was going on. Knowing that nobody was doing anything on their computers or their phones. Knowing that nothing was going on in, the, in society around me. And I mean, I felt that way during the day too. I remember talking on here about how during lockdown, they weren't even cutting the grass at parks, which I don't really understand. Like looking back, it's amazing how <laughs> how scared people were. Like people weren't like like ma like park maintenance guys weren't going to the park to you know landscape. Like traffic medians, you know, the, nobody was mowing the lawn of traffic medians, and they reached a point a few months in where the grass was insanely high. Like the gra like where I live the grass on each side of the road, the road got like higher than knee high, higher than knee high, higher than knee high. <laughs> I feel like some, uh, <laughs> I'm some like cowboy settler coming upon like a, a native community higher than he knee high. <laughs> Speaking some native tongue, higher than knee high, higher than knee high. But uh, the grass got insanely high. I've never seen that in my life. And to think about that, I've, they've never done that because we're so neurotic. We're so neurotic that the grass has to be short. The foliage has to be trimmed. Has to be. 
So the idea that for the first and what may be the only time in my life, you'd go to city parks, public parks, and the grass was insanely overgrown. That was wonderful. Because we never let that happen. I mean, it'd be really cool if you could vote on that. It'd be really cool if like one quarter of every year, they just decided not to cut the grass at parks. Like all the citizens vote. Oh yeah, you know, during the months of March through May every year, we're not going to cut the grass at public parks. But the reality is they keep it trim. So the fact that this insane thing was happening changed everything. And that you could go out. I mean, I remember going out during that time, not to turn this into coronavirus nostalgia, but I remember going out during that time and you just didn't see cars on the road. You did not see cars on the road during the day because people weren't going to work. They weren't doing much of anything. They were scared to even drive down the street because they thought that they'd get sick. I had to go to a store today and, you know, people, I mean, I expect people will be wearing masks here for a long time. It just seems like that sort of place. And I, like, you know, I don't give a shit about masks one way or another. But I went into a store today and I was on the phone and I just had to grab something and I walked in without my mask and I was like, oh yeah, you don't have to do that right now. And they didn't say anything, you know, I, I just was like, oh yeah, you don't have to do that. I can just walk into a place. I know a lot of people have been doing that. I'm not saying it's anything that cool, but in this area, every single store mandates it. It's been a while. It's been since last summer that they allow you to do that. And so it was just nice just to go in and be like, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting it on. Higher than knee high. It's my song. It's my war cry. Higher than knee high. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing that we just don't even let that happen. It was surprising to me. Even though I'd seen the grass growing, like even though I'd gone out all the time and I'd seen the grass growing, there was a day where I was just surprised. I realized how, it was, it was probably that time of year where like we, this, you know, our springs in uh, Washington, Western Washington, like we'll get like on and off rain during the spring and then like when the weather starts to warm up that combination causes plant life to just shoot up like amazingly quickly so i think something like that probably happened like the weather warmed up and plants grew like five inches grass grew five inches so there's one day where i was just driving down the road and i looked over at the, the median and i was like that median is overgrown that's the median is overgrown it was one of those things though where i was surprised by it because i'm so used to this neurotic human tendency to make sure everything's trim to landscape everything to do it regularly the city the city does it because it looks nice but we don't work surprised into anything we do Like the city should do that just as like kind of a holiday thing. Like we'll be like, oh yeah, we're not going to cut the grass for three months. We're not going to tell you we're going to do that. We're just not going to do it. People would be disturbed by it though because we're such creatures of habit. But again, it's because we expect it.
it's not that anybody actually cares if the grass on a traffic circle is cut or not. Nobody walks there. But we expect it, so, you know, if they don't cut it, we're going to think something's wrong. But it was the same sort of feeling like at night where, like, I would sit there at night and just be like, nothing is happening right now. Nobody is awake. This is sort of like a twilight zone, like I'm the last human being alive. And it wasn't a bad feeling. It was just peaceful. Not that you want that. Not that you want to be the last person alive. But when you have little moments where you feel like that, there is there's relief to it. But anyway, I need to go to bed. I'm, I'm going to wrap this up here. Talking about war and surprise and expectation. War is always a surprise. War is always a surprise. Okay.